Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, a series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this conversation, I speak with the brilliant Rob Hopkins, co-founder of the Transition Network and Transition Town Totnes, and author of several wonderful books, including one of my personal absolute favourites, From What Is to What If, The Power of Just Doing Stuff, The Transition Handbook, and The Transition Companion. Voted one of the independent's top 100 environmentalists in 2012, and named among Nesta and The Observer's list of Britain's 50 new radicals, Rob has appeared on BBC Radio 4's Forethought and a Good Read, and was featured in the French film phenomenon Demain, and its sequel, Après Demain. An Ashoka Fellow, Rob has spoken at TED Global and three TEDx events. He holds a doctorate degree from the University of Plymouth, and two honorary doctorates from the University of the West of England and the University of Namur. A keen gardener, Rob is also a founder of New Lion Brewery in Totnes, which I recommend you check out. And he's a director of Totnes Community Development Society, the group behind Atmos Totnes, an ambitious community-led development project. He's also an artist whose beautiful lino prints you can check out at robhopkins.net. And his podcast, From What If to What Next?, is really worth a listen if you're looking for inspiration as to how we can unleash our collective imaginations to create a more resilient world. Rob, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. I'm very excited about talking with you. Me too, me too. Lovely to be here. Thank you. (laughs) So I wanted to kick off with a bit of a different question for this season. And the question is, what is your greatest focus right now? Where are you putting your energies? Well, as usual, my energies tend to kind of be going off in several different directions at once. I'm one of those people who <laughs> who, who struggles to just stick with one thing. So I'm very, very passionately involved in a campaign in my town called Atmos Totnes, which is something I've been part of for about 14 years now, which is the where which is the most ambitious community-led development project in the country where the community is has been working to redevelop a former brownfield factory site in our town. Uh, it's a long, long story, but basically we got a day away from buying the site after years of work, after raising a million pounds, after a referendum where we got an 86% yes vote to proceed. And the day before we were going to sign, they sold the site instead to a private company who've had it now for two (gasps) years and done nothing with it. So I'm very, very involved with that in that we're putting together a case for our district council to use their compulsory purchase order powers to buy the site back. So that's taking a certain amount of my time. Uh, Running the podcast takes a certain amount of my time, as you know, as you will have found. (laughs) Getting two people to be available at a particular time in a particular place is much more of an effort than I might imagine. Yeah. I'm also starting the research for the sequel to From What Is to What If, 
which has been really good fun. Oh, how exciting. Which I'll get to in earnest in after May, I think. Because up until May, I'm also involved with the, the Transition Together team, which is Transition England and Wales. And we're planning something called Together We Can, which will be an online summit in May. And I'm one of the key sort of designers and organisers of that. And in my spare time, I'm just learning how to do dry point printmaking, which is a source of enormous excitement and fascination. So I'm curious then, with all of the different things in which you're involved, and obviously you're you're one of the, the co-founders of the Transition Network as well, so there's, there's a huge amount of passion and energy that you put into these, I think, connected projects. Totally. What are the threads that weave together these different areas of interest and passion, including the printmaking, which is very connected with creativity, imagination and play, which are themes that you cherish and that you write about beautifully in your book from what is to what if. Yeah, what are the threads that connect these different areas? I guess for me, I I, I've, I've, I mean, I went to art college when I was 18. I did foundation art and then I spent years after that, you know, then when I had a small family, desperately trying to keep alive drawing and stuff and and yeah. and it's been a much much neglected aspect of my of my life really but then I found I did a course with Lucy Neal and Ruth Bentovim who were then part of Encounters Arts who are both phenomenal and I really recommend Lucy's book Playing for Time if people haven't read that and they and it was and it really it was a course that really got me to see actually everything that I do in transition kind of as an arts practice, really. I mean, you know, the Totnes Pound, for example, which was a local currency that we ran here in Totnes for 11 years. We had a, we very famously had a 21 pound note so that when people would say, why have you got a 21 pound <laughs> note? We'd say, because we can, why not? You know, do what you like. Yeah, and, why not? <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I came to the, I came to see that as a, as, as an amazing art project, you know, it, it had, it was, it was a, a really bold community art project and in many ways the whole all, all the work I've done in transition could be classed as being art practice in some ways you know organizing people getting people involved for me the the aesthetics of everything has always been really important from logos to to, to the layout of stuff mm. I'm also very involved in my town in a in, in I, I started a, a craft brewery here called New Lion Brewery that's now the UK's first 100% community owned business and again with that the aesthetics of that are really important and uh and so for me yeah it's 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 all uh uh you know art is 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 really about uh a kind of an expression of the possible i guess ever since i was about 13 and i first got into punk and i first got into thinking about politics <laughs> i've always refused to believe that the future that is on offer and the future that we're told is just inevitable and that you're a dreamer to believe that anything else yeah. is possible i've always resisted that in everything that i've done and uh so i guess it still sort of comes from a lot of that as well you know it's like no 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 this <laughs> this is rubbish you know we can do an awful lot better than this mm. and and uh and so there is so running through all the different things that i do there i guess there's a sense of well, let's just try it and see. And I always say that, that there was a thing that I loved back then where that was this picture that was in some punk fanzine that showed you how to play three chords on a guitar and it said, here are three chords, now form a band. That's amazing. 
and I loved it so much. And that I guess that has been the spirit that runs through pretty much everything that I do. Like it's not that hard. Don't believe someone who says you have to start mm. study soil science for three years to figure out how to grow good carrots. You know, it's really not that complicated. You can build a house. It's not that complicated. You know, you can start your own community brewery. It's not that complicated. The thing is that you have a go. And even if you don't work, it doesn't matter. You tried and just share what you learned. Mm. So I guess that's part of the spirit that runs through mm. all of that. Because the beautiful thing with printmaking is the most, the most beautiful thing with printmaking is the things that are the accidents that you didn't expect. And you go, oh, that looks nice yes i'd not thought of that and i see the same thing as well through through all of the activism i'm involved with it's interesting hearing you speak about art as the root and i'm I'm surprised to hear that i also have um well you're probably not gonna be able to see it here in fact let me bring it into frame i just spent the last three years in in an art academy three and a half years doing realist art oh did you paint that (laughs) yeah i'll get you amazing thank you it's um for those of you who are listening and can't see us in conversation, it's a long pose, which is basically a, a model graciously stands for you for five weeks in sessions so that you can paint them. It's a really gruelling process, both for them and for the artists. They are allowed to eat sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> to eat and sleep. Um, but so to hear you talk about art as almost the kind of the life force, in a sense, that animates all of the ways in which you view your life's work is very... Uh, inspiring to me and so let's talk a little bit about the art and about what it can do because one of the quotes that I loved among all of the writing that you that you wrote which I loved which is very poetic actually and you say you talk a lot about the importance of imagination and you said something about to imagine a better world to tell stories about it to long for its realization it's this idea of longing being so important and that we need to play at living in the kind of world we want to create and this sense of creating longing and creating play which is so central to what you suggest is such a revolutionary way of facing up against the dystopian narratives that are perhaps so much easier for us to envisage and digest or the the gargantuan crises that face us and it's so much easier to curl up in a ball and go oh my god this is too much I can't and so I wonder, when you're thinking about imagination and longing and creating this sense of something that we want to, to work towards, are there people or stories that have really inspired you to make you feel that sense of possibility? Yeah, I, I, I feel like longing is such a, is such a it's one of my favourite words because when I go to France and I give talks, there isn't really a word in, in French that captures the sort of, the depth of yearning that you find in the word longing this it's like sort of i can't remember it's like extreme desire or something you know it's like yeah longing's a bit more than that i think actually (laughs) you know it's it says that beautiful quote by antoine saint exupery about you know if you want to build a ship if you want to get people to build a ship you don't teach you don't bring them wood you teach them to long for the immensity of the sea or something it's really really beautiful Mm. and um I guess I felt for years like the only way we're going to create the radically low carbon future that physics demands that we do. You know, this this goes far, far. If, if there's mm. anybody listening to this podcast who doesn't have nights when you can't sleep because you are so deeply troubled by, by climate science and what it's telling us, then I would suggest you're not paying attention and go back and read that stuff again because it's fundamentally important to absolutely everything that you do and the response to it has to go far far deeper than 
electric cars, which is not about mm. keeping the planet alive. It's about keeping the car industry alive. You know, we need, we have climate, climate change offers us the opportunity if we are imaginative enough to seize it, to reimagine everything, food, education, planning, architecture It's you know, and, and it always felt to me like if, if that is, if our culture feels that that invitation is like, our response to it is like a, a child who's had too much sugar at the end of a birthday party kicking off because they don't want to go home <laughs> again because they feel like, mm. because we feel like everything today is non-negotiable and irreplaceable and that this is the peak and we can't go anywhere from here. We're never going to do it. The only way we're going to do it is if our storytelling can bring a low carbon future to life in such a way that, that we cultivate that longing. So that, so that anything else is just absolutely not enough. That we wake up every day yearning for, for, that, for that future and what it would feel like and smell like. It's a thing I do in my podcast of asking the guest every time to step into my time machine to travel to 2030. It's an exercise I do on workshops of 10 people. I've done it in a hall with one and a half thousand people in Brussels. Step into my time machine. We're going to travel to the future. It's not utopia. Climate change hasn't disappeared, but it's the result of us having done everything that we possibly could have done during those intervening years. So it's a, a time of phenomenal shared purpose. And where have we got to? Describe it to us. What does it smell like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? You know. And if we don't do that, uh, Walida Imarisha, who's an amazing black activist storyteller in the US, she says, you cannot build what you cannot imagine. And you asked for an example. One of my favourite examples actually comes from the mid-1960s. It's a story I came across recently, and I just love it, in Zambia. So Zambia had just become independent from, from, the, from the British after years of brutal colonialist rule and oppression. And there was a guy called Edward, uh, Edward Makuka Nkolosa, I think, who was a teacher, school teacher, and who announced to the to the world very publicly that actually no, this was a time when Russia and America were competing to get the first man onto the moon. He said actually the first person on the moon is going to be from Zambia, and it's going to be a seventeen year old girl. And he he launched the Zambian space program out of this little shack wow. in this kind of dusty place in Zambia with this group of young men. Uh, sort of teenagers and this and this girl and the rocket basically looked like it looked like a sort of expanded dustbin. I mean, it was it was uh, it was not really very uh, space worthy. <laughs> and his training for um, for weightlessness in space was rolling them down a hill in a, in, a, in an oil drum. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of it's fun. Fantastic. There's a beautiful uh, uh, thing at the time where some kind of white, rather pompous male reporter goes to interview him, and at the end says, "There are many people who will tell you that Mr. Uncolosa is 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 crazy." And I have to say, having spent the day with him, I am inclined to agree. And uh, and it didn't go anywhere. And actually, what ended up happening was that the the the, the girl who was going to go into space ended up getting pregnant and having to go home to her parents, and the whole thing unravelled. But actually, years later, before he died, just before he died, about fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, he was awarded the highest honours that Zambia uh, awards to people, because he was a real kind of pioneer of. Just dreaming big. Well, why not? We've just become an independent nation. Why shouldn't the first mm. person on the moon be from Zambia? You know, he created that space mm. in 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 the in the national narrative to say, yeah, we could do though, couldn't we? You know, and there's, there there was mm. a playfulness and a kind of a um, 
the other person who I've been, I've just written a, a big article about Sun Ra, who was this extraordinary jazz musician from the 50s until the early 90s, who claimed that he had been to Saturn and that he was from Saturn and that his music was, and that actually his vision was that, that, that black people were going to travel through space and that space, they were going to settle on new planets. And it was this beautiful, really colourful art, but very disciplined kind of narrative about which which he completely inhabited this role that he was from Saturn and he was from space. When somebody said to him, "Oh, have you, have you seen Star Wars? What did you think of Star Wars?" He said, "Yeah, it was pretty accurate." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I and I, I keep thinking, well, what if as activists we were actually able to, in the same way that he's like, "Yeah, I'm here from Saturn. I'm going to tell you all about it." And and he inhabited that role all the time. It wasn't something he put on to go on stage. He went to do his groceries with this kind of mad sort of Egyptian Saturn headgear on. You know, it was who he was all the time. Amazing to actually occupy that role. Um, I saw some T-shirts that people were wearing during the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that said, uh, "I've been to the future. We won." Oh, that! But that gives me chills yeah. because it makes it possible. It's like, so why shouldn't, you know, rather than, uh, you know, I, I wrote this blog saying, you know, maybe the next big Extinction Rebellion in London should be the Time Travellers Rebellion, where everybody's like, we, 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 we've come here from the future. It's great. It wasn't that hard, you know, and there's this and it was like this and it's like this. You know, we need to, if, if we don't create longing for the future, then then we, we just tend to lapse into, it's too late, we can't do anything about it. We become what Michael Mann calls inactivists. And there's no time for that. We don't have the luxury of, of pessimism. You know, it's, it's like what's skillful. Mm. And one of the things I love that, that, that Sun Ra said was, uh, we, 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 we've tried the possible and it didn't work. Now we need to try the impossible. And I feel like that's something that I really try to, to bring into the work that I do. You know, what would that future be like? Let's, let's, let's sing songs about it, tell stories about it, paint about it, bring it alive in a way that becomes completely irresistible and that we create that longing for. Mm. Is interesting. One of the other quotes that I love, which I was going to lead with, uh, but then it got totally wrapped up in your story of Sunra and the others, is you say that perhaps it is this ability to create a deep sense of longing that is what will give positive visions the edge over the dystopian ones. Our challenge is to be able to begin telling deeper stories and that we need visionary stories of how things turned out okay and work back from there. Um, so I wonder then, what do you feel are some of the biggest blocks that we face for envisioning a different more flourishing future well i think uh so one of the one of the the, the ideas that i that, that i put forward in the book is that actually our, our collective imagination which should be like a finely honed muscle is really very very out of tone mm. and that uh there was a guy I interviewed called henry Giroux who talked about how uh, about what he called the disimagination machine, that we live in the time of a disimagination machine, a kind of a perfect storm of factors and elements that are deeply injurious to our collective imagination. So whether it's the highly addictive devices that we carry around in our pockets, which devour most of the time when previously we would have been imaginative, whether it's an education system that is rapidly designing creativity and imagination out of it entirely. You know, most people's work life, uh, doesn't doesn't make space for, for for the imagination. We've austerity has cut funding to libraries, to arts programs, to youth clubs, to all of those spaces where people can be imaginative. 
Uh, and we also know that stress and trauma and anxiety really increase the amount of cortisol in our system. And cortisol is deeply damaging to the hippocampus, the part of our brain where our imagination comes from. And there's also research that I put in that book about how as the amount of CO2 rises in the atmosphere, this is a bit that really scared me, mm. the, as the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere rises, uh, it starts to impair our kind of cognition and our ability to, to focus on things. Uh, uh, so you know, we, it, it was really that that frog in the boiling pan of water thing is really quite visible. But the stats on that that you put, and I wrote them down because I couldn't yeah. get my head around them the first time I read them. This is insane. You said increasing global CO two concentrations. We're currently roughly around the four hundred and ten parts per million would reduce cognitive ability if we get it to a thousand, which we do not want to do. If we reach that point, it reduces cognitive ability by twenty one percent. And that even the 660 parts per million, which is in the Paris Agreement, was would result in a 15% decline. That's huge. That's huge. And, yeah, and they found that in, from studies in Denmark where the air conditioning wasn't working properly and the CO2 levels built up, I think. Uh... Um, yeah, so, so, so there's all of these different things, I think, that, 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 that are kind of lining up to create this this sort of perfect storm of things that are really, really uh, are damaging to the imagination. But then also, uh, you know, inequality in an economy drives drives the, the sort of mental health elements that are really ruinous to, to the imagination. But maybe primarily is, is that we, all of the media that we're surrounded by and the stories that we hear are... Uh, underpinned by this idea that there is there's no alternative you know mm. margaret thatcher said there's no alternative and i feel like those words lodge themselves deep 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 into our cultural psyche um, and it's now something which when people say to me often you know what, what can i do to help boost my imagination i always say the most important thing you can do is to seek out the stories of of good things happening in places seek out the stories of solutions because you'll rarely hear them on the news yeah. But it's impossible to reimagine the world if you don't have stories of how people are reimagining the world because because your memory and your imagination are basically the same thing. They come from the same part of the brain. When you're being imaginative, what you're doing is rummaging around in the cupboards of your imagination and going, aha, what happens if I put this garden, this urban garden that I saw last time I visited Berlin together with this cooperative model mm. that I saw when I went to Rochdale and went to that really cool shop. If I put those two things together, mm. then what do we get? And that's the imagination piece. When you put two things, two memories together and create a unique sort of thing from that, that's really what imagination is. So you can only be as imaginative as you have loads of really cool stuff in your imagination cupboards. It's why the film Tomorrow, the French film Demain, was so powerful because it gave people in two hours loads and loads and loads of those stories. Here's how we could do food differently. Here's how we could do energy differently. And if we don't have those stories, it's a real, real struggle. Mm. So, so, uh, so we don't. That's one of the reasons is that we just don't hear those stories very often, and because there's so much in our current system. Mariame Kaba, who is the person who I've spent four years trying to get onto my podcast and still not managed. She's one of my great. She rose, who who is in America. She wrote a book called "We Do This Till We Free Us," all about the prison abolition yeah. movement, which for me is one of the great "what if" questions of our time. What if we had no prisons? Mm. Wow. Okay, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. She said, uh, "We live in a system that has been locked into a false sense of inevitability." Oof which I love so much. It's like, that's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. You know, you speak to anybody, I, I speak to people who work in government, they're like, you know, 
You you think this is people think this is a there's a conspiracy theory going on? You're joking. These this lot couldn't organise a conspiracy theory. You know, everybody's just like absolutely up to their necks and just completely overwhelmed, just trying to sort of sustain things because mm. there's no space for imagination for for reimagining things. You know, you have to create space for for reimagining things in any organisation in any movement. Otherwise, it just is absolutely not going to happen, and that has to be intentional. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, thinking about this a lot about what is it that's stopping us from being able to make moves forward when clearly increasing numbers of people are waking up to the fact that the house is on fire and just you know protecting one room is not going to cut it anymore. Like you you can't outrun a planet that is your only home. I mean, it's not possible. No. No matter how many Elon Musks we have on the world that try and get us to the moon or Mars or beyond. But um, one of the things that I keep busting up against, precisely this idea of, well, it's so bad that it must be a conspiracy theory. Because then there's this illusion of control if you can just figure out who the person is or that, you know, you kind of create this tribe of others that you say these people are in control if we can overthrow them. But it's not. The, the, the reality appears to be much more banal and insidious than that, which is that it's because we've somehow through various decisions and possibly just letting our basic natures or unhealed trauma run wild, created collectively a system that is so bureaucratic and slow, led by wounded leaders who are unable to function to the full breadth of human compassion, empathy, etc. There are so many different complex elements to this systemic issue that the solution has to be a wild reimagining from so many different layers and perspectives. How can we uh, educate better. And you talk about this beautifully in your book. You wrote about Ecole du Monde du Possible, which is an hour where you have a permaculture, agroforestry, animal husbandry setting where you're teaching people from year dot a different way of being. Or Landworks, which is another beautiful example that you gave a route back into employment and community for people who are either coming out of prison or at risk of going in. Or Our Angel in Scotland, that is an alternative that you talk about as a main as an alternative to mainstream psychiatric care. So these windows, like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, it will only work if we operate at all of these different levels. So I wonder from your perspective, because you're kind of giving this, this power and this fuel to this bigger imaginative renaissance, if you like, for people who are listening and thinking, okay, I want to seek out the stories that are going to inspire me to actually imagine a different possibility. That's great. What can I do in my life to start where would you suggest that people, or maybe a question people might ask themselves, and I'm asking as much for myself as for the people who are listening, say, okay, how do I contribute or start contributing to this very complex problem in a meaningful way? What might you what might you suggest, apart from reading your wonderful book, which I strongly recommend in any case? <laughs> I think the thing is to, to find what it is that you're passionate about and then go and do that thing. I, I was at a beautiful, I was at an event in France a few months ago and I was on a stage with a guy who was sort of in his late 70s I can't remember who he was but somebody he was a kind of an artist artist activist guy who did extraordinary creative artistic stuff someone and someone said this someone asked us this question what, what should we do what should we do mm. and he just said be useful <laughs> brilliant be useful <laughs> you know don't do something that's like some sort of vanity project some sort of ego thing that doesn't really uh that, that is just you know that, that, that's your mm. thing but doesn't really do anything useful you know be useful 
I was, you know, we, we talked about punk at the beginning, you know, it was always that thing of, if you've got people's attention for two and a half, three minutes in a song, you better bloody use it to tell them something useful. Don't use it to just show off about something, you know, use that time to educate people and to give people ideas and to inspire people with stuff, you know. So what I see is, is that when transition works best is, is when it supports people to do the thing that they're really, really passionate about. So if it's, if you, if you're really if you're really passionate about food, then don't start a local currency. Don't start a community energy project or something like that. You know, But if there is a group of people who are really mad passionate about a community energy company, then do that. Mm. And transition sort of holds that space that allows people to come through and say, yeah, I want to do that. And it's like, okay, how can we help? So one of the things that we do in Totnes through something called the Reconomy Centre, which is a... Um, a sort of uh, new economy business incubator space is we do an event every year, which is one of my highlight events called the, the, the Local Entrepreneur Forum, where you get five different people who stand up and say, hello, my name is Rob and I want to start a, a business making whatever it is and I need £10,000 and I need someone to help me design a website and I need somewhere to, to, to do it from. Hmm. And so what I so what I need is... Uh, 20 people who will invest 500 pounds and then in return I'll do this or whatever it is you know Amazing. so it's this idea of sort of using the community as the bank rather than going to the bank and it's been running now for so many years this, this year I think will be its 10th year and so many businesses have gone through it that it's created this culture where people go every year right okay you know I'm I, I'm now invested in a few different things that are coming through I know them they're in my town you know people talk about impact investing for me <laughs> impact investing is I know Seema and and her home catering and her her catering business I've invested in I've supported that and she's my friend and I can get you know it's like actually so you can see the world changing around you Mm. because you because you've supported things like that so so we need some infrastructure to be put in place to to support those people who want to do that when when we started Transition Town Totnes there were a group of us who gave two or three years of our time to create what we called a project support infrastructure so all the boring stuff, a bank account, um, a newsletter thing, a database, uh, funding to have somebody to administer the whole thing. So that then if somebody came along and said, I've got a project, I want to plant some woods over there, I want to make a, a, a food garden over here. It's like, okay, here's the infrastructure. You don't need your own bank account. You don't need your own website. You don't need this. You don't need that. It's, it's, it's all about how do we make it as easy for you as possible. Um, yeah, so my so my, my my main bit of advice would be go to the Transition Network website, transitionnetwork.org, and there's a thing there called Transition Near Me. Put in your postcode. There may well be a transition group already where you are or very near where you are. If there's one where you are, go along, get involved, see how you can help. If there isn't, then there'll be one in, in, in a town or a city near where you are. Make contact with them and uh, and maybe invite them over to give a talk about what they've been doing in their town to, to, to inspire what you're doing where you are. And, and and just get started, but with a spirit of, let's just see what happens. I'm not, you know, I'm not striving for perfection. It's like, let's just have a go and, and, and see where it goes. Brilliant. And that's such tangible advice as well. And I'm actually going to check that out. I've been living in Barcelona for just over five years now. And there's always this, this question of, because there's also the language barrier. I mean, I speak some Spanish, but it's not as good as my English, clearly. And there's always the question of what what can you do? How can you build bridges? And so that actually is a really wonderful piece of advice. So I'm wondering, with all of the work that you're involved in, one of the things that I must ask is how do you find rest and nourishment and rejuvenation? How do you avoid burning out from everything that you're taking on? 
I think I'm always, I, I try to be quite boundaried in terms of, I always try and stop work at half past five and I try very hard not to work on weekends and I try to sustain some time in my life for, for drawing and printmaking and I've just started doing an evening class to learn how to do dry point which is terribly terribly exciting <laughs> it's like etching um I uh I spend time outdoors I have a garden I try and grow food in the garden mm. doing that but also but I'm, I also feel like incredibly privileged because because my work is the thing that I love and that I'm passionate about it's kind of the sweet spot isn't it so but there, but there's a danger with that is that then you just do it all the time yeah because because you love it and and you can sort of see it, it having an impact so so I'm very fortunate as well in that my wife is very good at saying Enough. no 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 we're, <laughs> we're going out this evening or we're going away this weekend or whatever you know <laughs> uh I'd love to say also that that, that 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 I have a really great meditation practice, but my I'm not very good. I'm not as good as I used to be. <laughs> a lapsed <laughs> a bit, meditator. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit of a lapsed meditator, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'd like to think the meditation I have done helps. It's all in the still, bank. Yeah. <laughs> so you also write a lot about um, the power and importance of storytelling. And throughout your book, and I've seen his name crop up so many, so many different places, and I have one of his books on my shelf, you write about some of the work of Martin Shaw, who's a wonderful kind of a wilderness teacher and a mythology teacher and, and guide. And so I wondered, is there a story, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here a little bit, but a fairy tale or a poem or a myth that most ignites you or that comes to mind first or more powerfully? Yeah, there's, there's a story that I that I I put in the Transition Handbook, which was the first book I read. And I, I think in a lot of ways, the first book you write, it's a bit like a band's first album you know it's like all all the stuff they've been working on and playing for years and years and years all gets put on the first album which is why the second one is so difficult <laughs> you know and uh, so there's a story in there which is a a, a tibetan uh, is a story that appears in one of my one of my favorite books which is uh, called a, a guide to a bodhisattva's way of life that's mm. written i think in the 13th or 14th century by shanti deva who was a, an amazing buddhist teacher master philosopher guy all about basically how, how to live as a bodhisattva so how, how to live as somebody who uh practices compassion all the time who everything they do is basically for the benefit of all sentient beings and it's this beautiful this little tiny little story about this 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 grove of trees where the berries are poisonous mm. and uh but there is but the peacocks who live underneath these trees can eat these berries and they can turn them into beautiful plumage. And that is used as a story in that context, which is about how uh, when you master the art of being of really having compassion as a big part of what you do, you, you move through, through the world of suffering and you're able to translate that suffering into enlightenment and kind of skillful action. Uh, but also at the time, I, I, I remember thinking it, it's also how do you move through the climate emergency and the ecological emergency and the unraveling of everything mm. and the rise of fascism and all the awful things we're seeing in the world? You know, how do you find ways to move through that and turn it into things that are beautiful and things that are impactful? Uh, so that that's always been that's always been a story that has really kind of stayed with me because it's it's very simple but but very powerful i think there is something there isn't there about the um being able to be with ugliness and pain and suffering and the stuff that gets 
shoved into the shadow and forgotten or tried to kind of, you know, try to close the door on it. And finding a way to open that door, face into it, and almost search for the beauty there. Like I, I'm thinking a lot recently about the role of art and music and theatre and dance, all of these different, what some people might consider functionally useless, even though there's massive industries around them, useless outputs of humanity that you can't eat it, you can't build with it, but it's something which is so vital to us being able to live fulfilling lives. And so thinking about what is it that this search of beauty and its ability to transform pain and suffering into something different, just like you described with the kind of the poisonous berries and creating these beautiful plumages, what is it about the role of beauty in a modern era where everything is reduced from creativity to consumption or creativity to content? And there's a sense of kind of ravenous consumption, unthinking consumption of things that distract us but don't really feed us versus taking the time to, I don't know, sit around a campfire with three chords and sing out a tune with other people. You know, there's something that is not high art. It doesn't need to be high art, but there is something profound about the searching for and creation of beauty together with others. I don't know what your thoughts are around the role of beauty in a time of breakdown. I, I, I feel like it's one of those it's one of those things that that's hard to hard to pin down. So I'll be sort of just skating around the side <laughs> of it. I mean, you know, it's for me. It's it, it's to go back to, to to Sun Ra for a moment. You know, and I've been reading a lot about him the last few months because it's so so interesting. And interviewing some of the people who are who were sort of the most knowledgeable about him and about his work was you know he he grew up in Birmingham in in Alabama which was the most one of the most viciously racist Jim Crow cities in the US at the time he 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 was working the beginning of his working life he was playing in in, in venues where where the black band had to come in through a special door at the back and and when they and they they started out playing in strip clubs because it was the only work they could get, and they had to put a um, in order to for, for the white audiences not to kick off, they had to put a curtain between them and the stripper so that they wow. weren't looking directly at the stripper, but they had to be able to see enough of what she was doing so they could accompany musically what she was doing, oh but they couldn't. God. So they had just have so her shadow on a on a curtain. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but actually for him. To then to then come up with this whole narrative where where he said you know if if we are from nowhere here maybe we can be somewhere there you know it's like mm. this 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 world around us offers us nothing but we could but we could we could travel through space we could discover new new universes and new worlds mm. and music is the way to do that music is music and beauty are the ways to unlock that that sense of what's possible but art. Art can, you know, we, we are not going to do this in time. You know, after COP26, yeah. Kevin Anderson, who for me is the most uh, truth-telling climate scientist, he's a phenomenal guy, he's someone, uh, someone asked him, so after COP26, what do you think are our chances of, of, of finding a way through, through the climate crisis? He said they're about 5%. So we've got about a 5% chance. He said, but... But we have got a five percent chance. <laughs> you know that—that's like it's there. There is a five percent chance there. You know, and it, I don't think that we're going to do that without artists. Mm. And and but I, I, what would it? Be, you know, what if actually artists focused all of their effort on this? Mm. You know, actually, there's not time anymore for some esoteric projects about I don't know. You know, a lot of art you see is like, okay, yeah, very nice. <laughs> But really, we're in a climate emergency. Do you know, it's like if your house is on fire, you don't... 
I don't know, start to put building a sculpture <laughs> in the lounge. You, 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 you kind of get on with actually that fire rather takes priority, but maybe we can do that in, in you know, so it's and I see the seeds of that now in the in the in the music declares in the culture declares in these different movements of in 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 the writers declare these sort of movements of, of of artistic people. Ben Okri has written about it recently beautifully, saying you know we have to do everything that we write has to be about this now. Mm. This is the, the, this is this is the the framing has to be the framing for everything that we do, um, because you know. Extinction Rebellion start to give a taste of, you know, the big pink boat in the middle of Oxford Circus, the big pink table, these sort of big, playful kind of interventions that, mm. that, that really get people talking. You know, we could do such amazing things if we can harness that sort of artistic world. You know, like in, that, in this piece that I just published yesterday about, you know, what Sun Ra can teach climate activists. You know, what if we were, we were able to do a thing where 30,000 people were on the streets of London... And they'd all just arrived from 2030. And they brought with them things from 2030 to say, look, it's not bad. Look, we've got these things here. And what the hell is that? Well, this is a thing because nowadays we need to do this. Or, you know, we, we have new words now to describe the things that were happening. Like, we'll, we'll teach some of those words. Or we, you know, we can, we can create kind of pop-up tomorrows. We can take places in London and show you what it's like. We're going to create it in miniature here so you can meet it and, 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 and interface with it. You know, if we don't, the way that we learn as as children is through let's pretend. Yeah, yeah. It, it allows us to to experiment with things. It's how we learn to cooperate. It's how we learn to resolve conflict. It's by allowing ourselves to go. Let's pretend. You be this. I'll be that. Okay. We stop doing that as <laughs> as adults. Mm. You know there there are there are people throughout history in phenomenally bleak situations mm. now sometimes people say to me well imagination's all very well rob but actually <laughs> surely it's a bit of a luxury for 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 kind of uh, educated uh, uh, middle class people who've got time and space to be imaginative it's like no 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 actually one of my favorite stories about the imagination is was written by a french poet whose name i don't remember uh, who talked about who was sent to one of the concentration camps uh, mm. during the Second World War, and who talked about one day he was in he was in the, his sort of building in this concentration camp, and the guards came to load them all into a truck to take oh. them away, and they knew they were he knew they were all going to be taken away to be executed, and so he stood at, at the place that, so they all had to pass him to get into the truck, and as each man came up to get into the truck, he would read their palm as if he was a fortune teller and he'd yeah. say oh you have such a long lifeline and i can see you're going to live to an old age and you're going to have three children and uh, you're going to live an incredible your, your incredible life and then they would get into the next man would come and he'd say oh look at this and and he did this for a few people and, in, and the guards after a while the guards were just like i'll oh, put them back in again wow and and because he was able to open up in in that in that bleakest bleakest of moments the possibility, the imagining that, that something else was possible than what absolutely seemed to be on offer there. You know, so so for me, it's not like it's and it's a story that always gives me the goosebumps. Mm. And, and it's it's like actually, this is a this is climate change is not something that's going to be happening in the future. It's happening now, mm. everywhere. It's happening here now. It's happening in Greece. In Greece, in, in Athens, they've got about two feet of snow in Athens because the Gulf Stream has gone all over the place uh, in that part of the world. This is not a future thing. So, so you know, we, we're in it now. So, how do we bring that same kind of thinking, that same urgency, but we bring the imagination in, in into the time now because we absolutely our survival depends upon it.
just have the presence of mind, especially what we were talking about before you write about this in the book, when we're in that extraordinarily stressed state, when you, in that example, when you know that you're going to be executed, to come up with an intervention that is compassionate and completely beyond the realm of what you're stressed being. It's just, it's just astounding to me that that's even possible. Yeah. That's such a powerful story. So I was going to ask you three questions to close with, and one of them, maybe you've, you've answered this with the wonderful stories you've already shared, but I was going to ask which person is most influencing you or maybe has most influenced you or inspired you that you think everyone who's interested in this should know about? And you've mentioned some wonderful people already, but maybe if there's someone that you can add to that list that people should know about. Do another hour just on that, really. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think at the moment most of the people who are inspiring the work and the research that I'm doing around imagination are are black women. So I would recommend Mariami Kaba, who I mentioned. Her book "We Do This Till We Free Us" is just extraordinary because when you get into this thinking okay what if we what if we ab- abolish prisons it takes you then into so much in terms of okay so what would have to be in place for us to do that what would our justice system look yeah. like what would our school system look like what would the way that we fund and resource communities look like what would what would policing look like you know there's a whole sequence of things that need to be in place and it opens up all of that conversation and and she she holds that discussion in such a in such a, a wise and skillful, extraordinary way, you know, saying, well, actually, the most what, what's the most violent thing in America in 2022? It's, the, it's our prison system. It's absolutely brutal. Mm. Uh, so I'd recommend her. I'd recommend Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote a book called uh, Emergent Strategies, which is phenomenal. She writes a lot about pleasure activism. Oh, wow. She's one of those people who's wise way, way, way beyond her years and uh, and I think is amazing. Uh, Itasha L. Womack has written a lot about Afrofuturism, which is really, really fascinating. Mm-hmm kind of uh, distilling of different things within uh, African-American culture, which are about telling a different story about the future, uh, where, you know, she talks about growing up watching science fiction programs like Logan's Run that were all about the sort of science fiction Mm. utopian future with no black people Mm. in them at all. (laughs) It's like, oh, Mm. okay, oh, that's the future Mm. that's coming, is it? Oh, I'm not quite sure I can see myself in that place. Um, And uh, and Walida Imarisha, who I I wrote, who wrote a written various things but she wrote something called um octavia's brood which is all about the work of octavia butler and different people using uh sort of prefigurative writing or speculative fiction you know writing about utopias she says something one of the things she said was all organizing is science fiction all organizing is science fiction that basically when you organize around an issue and you campaign about it it's science fiction because by necessity you are telling a story of the future that is at variance with the one that's currently on offer because otherwise you wouldn't be having to do that protesting in the first place so the idea that when we mobilize and we are being activists we are we are telling science fiction stories so we might as well get good at it because it's kind of what we're doing anyway Mm. There's lots of other people, but I would say that they are they are some of the key people who at the moment are really uh, in, inspiring me. Wonderful. And then to add to that then, um, if there are any tools or practices that you found invaluable in your in your work with these 
subjects or these themes of transition? Uh, dry point etching. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get loads of sign-ups happening after this, people going to their local community centres. <laughs> I want to try dry point etching. <laughs> I mean, for me, I would say uh, getting a big book of Van Gogh's drawings because Van Gogh's oh. drawings make me cry. And uh, if I could, and that's mm. my, if I could ever come, because of the extraordinary mark making that he did and the stuff that he used and how he did that, I just love it. Um, uh, practices, oh, I don't know. Um, I think learning to listen really well. I think deep listening is really important. Mm -hmm. I think learning to ask really good what if questions. Mm. Uh, I think um, learning to intentionally create space in your life where your smartphone is in a drawer and you can't access it and you just and you just are able to uh, go for long dreamy walks without it Albert Einstein always said his best ideas came to him when he rode his bicycle in the forest and I think we we, we need to remember mm. that you know I always say you know how I, I there's a story I love telling I don't know if we've got time for this but yeah, dive in. In, in the book I tell the story about you know imagine Vincent van Gogh in the yellow house in Arles in 1888 and he comes in with his bunch of sunflowers and uh, he arranges them in a little earthenware pot on the on the little wooden table in the kitchen there of the yellow house. And uh, the sun's coming in through the windows and he sits back to look at them. Gets out his smartphone and thinks, oh, I'll just check my Twitter and my Instagram and my Facebook <laughs> and my Pinterest and whatever. And two hours later, he's watching skateboarding videos on YouTube and he can't remember why he even started watching those. Then those paintings wouldn't exist. That series of extraordinary paintings that anytime I'm in London and I'm feeling a bit down, I just go to the National Gallery and sit in front of the sunflowers for half an hour and it fills me up for about six months. Those pictures wouldn't exist because art is really distilled uh, attention. And uh, so so we have to take, you know, how many brilliant ideas that could be pivotal in the climate and ecological emergency just never get anywhere because we reached for our phone instead? That's such a powerful point. You know, it's it, it, it's it's a huge, huge thing, and people are now just really starting to, to to focus on on how important that is. So I would say, develop a different relationship with the technology in your in your life where you're in charge, and not that sort of powerful addictive technology uh, is in charge. So finally, then, and you've actually given one gorgeous example just there, talking about Van Gogh's sunflower. As someone whose work focuses on imaginative and creative ways to envision a more generative future, a flourishing future. Acknowledging that that's where you're wanting to go means also looking at our current trajectory and the difficulties that we now face. So how do you orient yourself towards hope on dark days? I think Paul Hawken, uh, who's a, an environmentalist and a writer, he put it beautifully. He said, if, if, you, if you read the climate science and you're not a pessimist, then you haven't read it properly go back and read it again. But if you've spent any time among the movements around the world that are trying to do something about it, and you're not an optimist, then you don't have a heart. And I felt that so, so strongly when I was in Glasgow for COP26. You know, it was actually the, the main process was just heartbreakingly, glacially slow and, and unimaginative. And outside the venue, the streets were full of passion and commitment and beauty and music and dance and, and vision. Uh, you know, I, 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 I feel like actually, you know, we, we often hear people talk about eco-anxiety as a thing and as if somehow, you know, it's some kind of a syndrome or it's a, you know, that I, I, eco-anxiety basically means you have a pulse and you're paying attention 
as far as I'm concerned. It's like if you don't, it's the people who don't experience eco anxiety, the ones that we really need to worry about. I think. Um, yeah. So, so for me, I I have yeah, I have regular days when 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 it all kind of washes over and it's like oh, you know, particularly when we are led by such appalling people whose whose interests are so short term and so so selfish um so you know and the odds aren't great you know i'm not i'm not here saying to people oh you know it'll be fine it's like the odds are that this is not gonna that this this is going really phenomenally badly um but i always say to people you know one of the things that i i you know i i enjoy football as well and i remember seeing one time when my team were losing 3-0 and then they came back in the second half and they won 5-3 and 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 it was one of the best football games i ever saw and and i, I and i know i don't know what was said by the manager at half time but he definitely didn't say why well, it's probably too late isn't it and uh, uh you know I, we've had it and i don't think we should bother and maybe we should just sit and spend the second half grieving uh, about how badly we did mm. in the first half it's like no 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 you have to you have to give it everything that you've got and like kevin anderson said you know there's a five percent chance but there's a five percent chance and and the thing that we know as as a climate movement is that the things that we've done up until now clearly have not been enough because if they had been we'd have cracked this Mm -hmm. in the 1980s if just giving people enough evidence and people having enough information would make them go aha i see you're right yes we should change things if that had been enough, we'd have cracked this years ago, and it's not. It's more complex than that. So, so for me, yeah, it's you need people around you to support each other because Aldo Leopold, who was one of the first people who I guess we'd call an ecologist, he once said to, to have an understanding of ecology is to live in a world of wounds or something like that, you know. And it, and it is something where um, it's a kind of a it's, – it's, it's a very charged – space to be in you can't turn it off once you've had your climate change dark night of the soul you can't turn it on and off it's just there all the time yeah Yeah. but yeah if we don't to come back to what we said earlier you know if 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 we can't if if we don't also work with a deep longing in, in us and a really strong clear vision of the world that we could create on the other side of this and how much more delicious and exquisite and life-fulfilling and beautiful and what's the word convivial it would be then we're just not going to create it so so for me yeah it's it's all it's always a balance all the time i was you know i say if if someone's pessimistic all the time then that's really not great for for mental health or for us being able to do anything but at the same time if someone's optimistic all the time i think they're rather kind of missing the point somewhere and i don't quite believe them so the balance is always going to be somewhere in the middle we just need to find a balance that allows us to to, to still be kind of uh, effective and uh but also not swallowing stuff down you know that we have the support uh, around us to to be able to digest and manage and function wonderful well thank you so much if people want to find out more where's the best place for them to find you so you could go to robhopkins.net, which is the blog that I do. If you want to find out more about the transition movement, it's transitionnetwork.org. And if you wanted to become one of those beautiful, wonderful people who subscribe to the podcast and, and enable us to make it, uh, it's not much. And it's uh, patreon.com slash from what if to what next. And we've just also started sharing, as I start 
planning the the next book I'm going to do all of the interviews that I do as I'm researching that I post there as well I always like to do my sort of open research do my do my workings out in public so I'm just about to publish an interview there with a guy who's one of the world experts on Sun Ra and there'll be those will be going up regularly so people who subscribe will get all of those too brilliant and the book from what is to what if and the podcast from what if to what next (laughs) rob thank you so much for your time today it's been absolutely brilliant speaking with you my pleasure it's been a lot of fun thank you thank you for listening to the hive podcast with me natalie nahai if you enjoyed the show please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears and for more information you can visit natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.